The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Business uh, with Mahesh Joshi. Today we are going to talk about a country which is not much talked about, but is very important component of global economy, Australia. To discuss with us, uh, we have with me Mr. Didi Saxena, <coughs> joining from Melbourne, Australia. Uh, Mr. Saxena is promoter, founder of ROBE, an oil seed crushing and refining company in Australia. Uh, he's one of the most successful person in setting up multiple greenfield projects and uh, he has an exceptional entrepreneurial flair. He is very experienced senior management executive. He's worked with uh, multiple uh, multinational companies including uh, Unilever. Uh, Didi is very distinguished and he has been awarded the Asia Pacific Entrepreneur of the Year Award by Times Now 2016 and recently he also received the award for CEO of the Year Energy and Resources. Welcome Didi. Thank you very much Mahesh. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. Uh, Didi, I know today we are going to have a very exciting discussion. Let me just um, uh, walk through some of the facts about Australia for our listeners. the country of Australia, quick facts, population 23.6 million, GDP on purchasing power parity 1.1 trillion with a growth rate of 2.7%. Actually, even for five-year compound annual growth rate, it's been 2.7. What's the amazing part uh, for any country in Asia is, is the GDP per capita, which is 46433 dollars that's an amazing number uh, when uh, everybody considers a- Asia as a developing economy and Australia is part of that. Uh, some uh, key features about Australian economy. Australia's economy is 12th largest globally and it sits astride emerging and developing markets, ah, sorry, developed markets. Uh, making the currency uh, favored bellwether for worldwide growth as the biggest iron ore ex- exporter and a major supplier of coal, wool, gold, and liquefied natural gas, this country's fortunes are wedded to those of China. But the South Pacific nation is about more than just raw materials. It also has tourism and education as another two major exports. Australia continues to be an attractive and dynamic investment destination with almost all industries open to foreign competition and it has a skilled workforce available readily. The government plays a major role in terms of it has withdrawn from most areas of the market and competition in sectors such as financial services has increased. Government debt has been rising since the global financial crisis, but remains substantially lower than in most other advanced economies. Definitely, Australia remains exposed to China's industrial cycle, and the latter is clearly tied to the fate of global growth. The currency has shown some movement. It jumped 2.4% since the end of June 
as the outlook for inflation improved on a surge in commodity prices. Another good feature of Australia is its regulatory environment. One of the world's most transparent and efficient. It is highly conducive to entrepreneurship. It takes only two days to launch a business. The flexible labor market facilitates dynamic employment opportunities. In the year 2015, the Conservative government ordered the taxpayer-funded $10 billion Clean Energy Finance Corporation to ease any new investments in wind power projects as an example. Australia's judicial system operates independently and impartially. Property rights are secure and enforcement of contracts is reliable. The stable political environment supports transparent and well-established political process, a strong legal system, competent governance, and an independent bureaucracy. Anti-corruption measures are generally effective in discouraging bribery of public officials. And uh, with a 1.8% average tariff rate, low non-tariff barriers, and fuel limits on foreign investment, Australia has some of the world's most open <coughs> trade and investment policies. The government screens large foreign investments, definitely. The well-developed financial sector is highly competitive. It's very sound. All banks are privately owned. And since 2010, banking reforms have fostered greater transparency and competition. Now, all this background, if you look at, is very conducive for business. It's all good news. Now, Didi, I'm heading towards uh, the very first question. And uh, in some of the programs uh, before this one, we shared with our listeners that the economic center of gravity has been shifting from west to east. And it's shifting at the speed of almost 140 kilometers per year. Just a quick background. In 1980, the global economic center of gravity was mid-Atlantic. Uh, then, unsurprisingly, that reflected how North America and Western Europe between them held by far the greatest proportion of global economic activity. However, by 2008, that center of gravity has drifted to location east of Helsinki and Bucharest. Of course, this change occurred not due to emergence of Turkey or Belarus, but instead from the continuing rise of China, India, and rest of Asia. It is the rise of the East that has pulled the global economy's center of gravity, almost 75% of Earth's radius, uh, equal to 4,800 kilometers eastwards. Now, extrapolating growth in those almost 700 locations across Earth gives the world's economic center of gravity location in 2050, literally between India and China. It looks like with this happening, Australia will have a major role to play because it connects very well between the major players are supposed to be growing major players in Asia and the developed economies. What are your thoughts about it? Uh, Mahesh, there is no doubt that um, the 21st century is the Asian century. And um, if you look at the last 25 years as a proportion of Australia's business, there is no doubt that the center of gravity for Australia has changed totally. As a matter of fact, amongst the top five partners in trade, uh, the number one is uh, China, number two is Japan, number three is Korea, number four is India, number five is United States. So whether you look at it from a trade flow, whether you look at it from a capital flow, whether you look at it from a growth flow, uh, that is going to be the future of Australia. Uh, my personal belief is that Australia is very well placed geographically. It is um, very well uh, placed from a point of view of its um, raw material base. It's very well placed from your socio-economic uh, basis to very constructively engage with the, the Asian economy. 
I mean, it's not just a question of economic opportunity. I mean, in the last 25, 30 years, there has been significant interaction in terms of uh, country to country. There has been a very deliberate strategy which has been evolved by the government in terms of trying to get free trade agreements. And um, also, I mean, as you mentioned earlier, one of the key issues is uh, Australia is a very major exporter of um, education services. And um, I mean, while uh, undoubtedly U.S. is still the, the, the biggest pull in terms of um, uh, education, I mean, Australia has probably become the second largest in this region and particularly for the Asian countries. So that builds in tremendous amount of um, understanding and, and creates a platform for, for future engagement. Um, the growth in China, since you mentioned in specific, has been in building infrastructure and um, building infrastructure obviously requires a lot of steel, a lot of energy and uh, Australia's uh, two largest resources which are uh, exported out of the country and which have really propelled the Chinese growth in infrastructure are iron ore and coal. I mean, Australia is the world's largest exporter of iron Iron ore, probably 50% of uh, total exports of iron ore are contributed from Australia. And it produces about 480 million tons of coal, of which nearly 300 million tons it exports. So it has been certainly um, uh, an era of growth and prosperity fueled as far as the Chinese growth is concerned. Um, interestingly and surprisingly, 25 years ago, India used to account for being not even amongst the top 20 trading partners with Australia. Admittedly, the trade flow is one way from Australia to India, but right. India also has become a very major, major importer of these resources. Apart from that, uh, I mean, which we can touch later, is uh, my personal belief is that uh, Australia's second largest uh, economic, you know, base is agriculture because God has blessed it with a lot of land uh, and, and, and its farming practices, which we can talk a bit later, are, are very modern, very efficient, and perhaps uh, in, in dry land farming, the best in the world. And what is happening is that the Asian per capita consumption of every commodity is moving up, uh, whether it's milk, whether it is uh, protein, whether it is uh, poultry and meat. Uh, and therefore, the question is, these are all uh, opportunities because Asia's population is high, land is diminishing, yields are not that good. And as food safety and food security becomes an issue, Australia, in my opinion, will become to Asia perhaps a long-term food basket. Yeah, it looks like because if you if you look at uh, the world economy today, it's, it's almost Asia-driven uh, and, uh, and a close integration there is instrumental for Australia's future. And uh, uh, Australian economy uh, is very well connected with Asia on all three important dimensions. It could be people, as you rightly said, in terms of education. Uh, uh, there's a lot of interaction there, a lot of export from <coughs> sorry, Australia, and also in the other dimensions of trade and capital. Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, see, the thing is, um, while, I mean, the opportunities are huge, uh, the, the fundamental uh, issue from Australia has been, I mean, um, as I said to many people many times, uh, most of Australia's wealth is either under the ground or over the ground. Right. And it unfortunately has developed a culture of being a primary producer um, and, and not adding value. I think this thinking is driven for a few reasons. One is we have only 22, 23 million people and therefore investment in manufacturing assets which are capital intensive cannot be leveraged uh, over such few people. The second thing is that uh, it's much easier and uh, it's, it's, it's history been that agriculture and mining have been the key drivers of the economy and since the going has been good, it has not motivated Australia to add value. So 
the opportunities are not, I mean, uh, just in terms of being a primary producer. I think one of the key opportunities in Australia from a perspective uh, of, of growth for both the Australian economy and investment potential is to put up value-added facilities. And uh, that's exactly what we have done. And in, in, in that sense, it's not a mature economy because the, once you add value to the product, you're no longer a price taker. Whereas if you're a commodity player, you're always going to be a price taker and never a price maker. Right. Second point is that Australia's output is not just in terms of volume. I mean, Australia has outstanding quality. I mean, you know, whether it is agronomical practices, whether it is food safety laws, uh, whether it is even, you know, health and safety and security in mining industries. So the issue basically is any qualitative parameter of excellence or superiority does not build any preference if you're purely a, a commodity player. And uh, I mean, you know, your price, if it's more expensive than the, I don't know, price of Brazil, well, you lo lose out. Or if, let us say, you know, wheat from Russia is cheaper irrespective of its quality, you lose out. And right. I think the key opportunity is going to be, obviously, not to build many capital-intensive industries uh, because uh, over 23 million people, but particularly in the area of food and agriculture, adding value will create more reliable, more sustainable markets. It will create a market access. And uh, I think the key issue is that brand Australia is, uh, is it's a very low-key brand in the world, but it's a powerful brand. People associate brand Australia with a lot of goodness. They're associated with reliability. They're associated with certainty. They're associated with quality. And, uh, but we don't have Australian brands. And, and, and that is why I think that, in my opinion, is, is an opportunity. Uh, Australians, by and large, Mahesh, are low risk takers. And, right. and I think life has been too good for too long. Right. And, uh, you know, some kind of disruption is required in this industry with uh, either fresh thinking, innovation, and new capital, and fresh blood to be able to make that happen. Perfect. I think uh, you raised a very important point. Did you will take a short break and we'll be back shortly. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. America Business Network. Mahesh Joshi. Today we are having very interesting discussions uh, with uh, Mr. D.D. Saxena from Melbourne, Australia about the role of Australia in global business. D.D., you brought in several very good points uh, in uh, the first segment. Uh, we will take a little bit deeper dive on some of them and uh, one of them was very important uh, point you raised about the brand. Yes, definitely. The quality of GDP is very good for Australia. The quality of product and services is as good as any other developed country. However, the brand Australia is not sold as uh, equivalent to that. Uh, I would say it carries probably a lot of weight and uh, it has a lot of good quality along with it. Just wanted uh, some of your opinion on 
Australia, with Asia coming up strongly, uh, there seems to be a closer integration appearing with Asia. And uh, there could be uh, a stiff competition for local players um, from Asia, which can enter Australian market. Do you think that can lead to a little bit of value uh, impact? It may degrade the value uh, for the local business or uh, that would be treated as a second tier brand and there is a space for both to survive? Um, I think uh, Australia is a fairly conservative country uh, when it particularly comes to certain category. But, uh, I mean, like we all know that China is the manufacturing factory of the world. Right. And, and undoubt right. undoubtedly, uh, there are products and brands which are manufactured there and come here. But I think the global brands basically dominate this market. And um, I think long term, what you're saying is very true. My personal view is that uh, there are powerful Japanese brands which have high credibility, high quality, undoubtedly one of the best in the world. Um, some of them have sort of made an in inroad, like Uniqlo, you know, as has launched a few years ago and is doing reasonably well. Um, there are obviously in the area of services, IT companies from India which have done very well. There are uh, a few Chinese companies which are trying to make forays. But if you really look at it from a point of view of um, products in the food industry or products in the electronic industry, it's still the traditional products coming from Europe, America, um, you have electronics coming from Korea, Japan, Taiwan. Uh, so in that sense, a bit of Asian-ness, but I think Mahesh is a long way to go. Mm -hmm. I think what is happening is that Asian capital will become more and more welcome. I mean, there is undoubtedly a big um, political debate and, and a bit of emotion because Australia has huge expanse of land and, and you know, people are very wary of foreign ownership of the land. But uh, I mean, like a lot of Chinese investment is coming in um, in, 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 in cattle industry, um, in agriculture industries, in infrastructure industry, in mining industry. Uh, most of it has been very welcome. Uh, some of it uh, for, for certain reasons, either political or undoubtedly protecting some of the local businesses has been uh, a bit iffy. But uh, by and large, surely um, the, the, uh, the thing is that uh, capital inflows in Australia are undoubtedly required to give a stimulus to the industry. But I think what is more interesting is not only to necessarily look at what you can invest in and what you can make in Australia, but I think what you can take from Australia. And I think in that sense, JVs which have, again, either brands in Asia or JVs which have basically access to markets can find Australia a very reliable place. Hmm. I think you bring a very good point because the capital investments from Australia into Asia and uh, vice versa has increased because uh, yes. the, the incoming uh, investment as you rightly said has grown tremendously from Asia. It increased almost 50% in last 10 years. And uh, I think um, uh, when the last decade got over by around 2011, it was close to $20 billion. Same thing on outgoing investments. It, it, ha it has been volatile, but uh, it has grown almost 200% in the same period, but a lower number. It was $3 billion at the corresponding same time snapshot in 2011. So effectively, Australia is a net importer of capital. Yeah, I, I, I think, Mesh, uh, uh, I think Australians are a bit wary of putting capital overseas and I think they lack mindset and the skill set, mm -hmm. whereas Asians are far more entrepreneurial mm -hmm. and um, they, uh, they, they, they trust their money in Australia for all the reasons that you mentioned. It's a stable country, the law of the land. Mm -hmm. um, they feel that uh, it's a level playing field. 
and um, they're, they're far more open-minded, you know, in terms of taking the opportunity up. But I think the, the, the issue with Australia has been that while they're very exposed and they're very connected, mm -hmm. I think the, 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 the capital investment in terms of putting manufacturing assets mm -hmm. and in terms of long-term capital is, is limited. What we do see happening is that there is no denying that infrastructure funds, uh, Australia has a lot of money from their super funds, I mean nearly $2 trillion. And um, the issue really is they are managed funds and they have certain tax concessions as well. But uh, they run very professionally and I think you will see big Australian investments in infrastructure going into India, Indonesia, mm. um, and, and perhaps other Southeast Asian countries as well. So there is going to be uh, those opportunities because, frankly speaking, uh, with the aging population and with super funds increasing, I mean, money as a commodity has to find a place to invest. Right. And, and I think at the super funds are looking for a yield play rather than a capital appreciation and a safer investment. So it is those sort of investments which I think will become more pronounced than, you know, corporate investments which are really equity driven or which build something long term. Yeah. So I think you, you bring in another very good point for the, for the low risk appetite uh, in Australia uh, for investments. But that could be a big positive for uh, the Asian countries uh, who are looking for seeking returns in low risk environments. So probably Australia gives them that environment. Um, uh, did he move? Yeah, on? I mean, sorry, go ahead. Um, you, when, in, in the first segment, we talked about the commodities play and then we'll come to the agriculture also. I wanted to come back to the type of economy we have in Australia. Uh, we, we depend quite a bit on uh, oil and gas mining, predominantly mining as number one. Um, it's not a right word to use, but I will try to relate. What's your thought? Uh, in terms of can you can you see Australia in past was suffering from a Dutch disease, but a version called Dutch disease light, not the full Dutch disease as a commodity heavy economy? Yeah, I mean, look, um, um, to some extent, uh, that is undoubtedly true. And, uh, and, and I've always been a great believer that having uh, iron ore, as I mentioned earlier, is 100 billion export item, which is bigger than twice of agri-production, which is the second largest segment in the economy. And that to 80% of that to China is, is a very vulnerable business model for the country. <coughs> and um, the issue is uh, these are uh, boom cycles and I wouldn't say they become bust cycles. They, they certainly taper out very quickly. Uh, also, I feel that uh, being resource rich uh, is in some sense um, a big plus, but it can also make you lazy and monopolistic. Right. But at the same time, I, I think what has happened is that the country is making significant efforts. I mean, services economy accounts for about 55%. And uh, there is no denying that the country is trying to get the other pillars of the economy working. There is, as I said earlier, a significant focus on food and agriculture business and exports to to the world, but particularly to Asia. So that becomes one segment. Um, the manufacturing sector the, will have to change in its very outlook. I mean, you know, the automobile sector was a driver in the 80s, but it's almost um, become redundant now to the economy because of sheer cost competitiveness. But um, um, look, uh, to some extent, what you're saying is very true, and I'll, I'll just give you what my view is and my take is that a highly monopolistic environment uh, in Australia creates a few problems. And the first problem is, uh, apart from just being mining, um, as, as a monopoly, the, co the corporates are also a monopoly. And I think they, they develop a lot of fat, less muscle, there's, there's a lot of internal thinking, it, um, it sort of 
deprives innovation. It doesn't provide much venture capital or growth capital in the country. Banks become risk averse and they like to lend to more and more monopolies. As a matter of fact, if you trace United States, America and India in the last 75 years, you will see amongst the top 100 companies, or top five, why top, top 10 companies in the United States 60, 70 years ago and today, only two are common. Uh, if you take India 60, 70 years ago, and now there are only two companies which are common. If you take Australia 60, 70 years ago and today, mm -hmm. eight, eight out of ten are the same company. Yeah. And uh, that, that's a strange thing, you know, which means we, they have to have a fresh country strategy and some of it will come predominantly by positive thinking and anticipatory uh, rather than reactive decision making. Yeah. But uh, so that that's something which I think is bound to happen that uh, the country will have to reassess and uh, recalibrate the next 20 years, 25 years of what it would do. I mean, there's no denying that while coal is a major driver and it will remain for some time, I mean, the drive is towards, you know, clean energy and, and, and lower carbon energy. So those are the risks to the country. But uh, the opportunity also from this country in terms of services like education, tourism, health services. I mean, this country is excellent in terms of its uh, not just infrastructure and health, but just the kind of services, research and biotechnology. Um, and again, I hate to harp on it. I'm a great believer that the next biggest vehicle of engine on a sustainable basis will be agriculture in this country, yeah. food and agriculture. You bring in several very good points, like one of them where you give the example of uh, U.S. and India, if you look at U.S., uh, the top 10 companies in terms of, I won't say top 10, but I would say the fastest growing companies, which contribute almost 10% of GDP, are uh, from um, startups. Uh, it could be Facebook, it could be Groupon uh, or LinkedIn. Most of these companies, Uber, Airbnb, they all came after 1997. So, uh, and, and if you look at the last three decades of job creation in U.S., 75% of the time, the net positive job growth was because of uh, uh, the new startups. And the conventional industries, the GEs of the world and other companies, if you count them, the job growth was negative. So, innovation and startup culture has fed in a long way into the growth uh, of economy as well as uh, job creation in the United States. That's uh, one very major point. Didi, we are going to take another short break now and uh, we'll resume shortly. the market's up or down, or if you're looking to improve your portfolio, our experts are ready to talk to you. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. business you'll find the experts here voice america business network Welcome back. 
You are listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. We are having a very interesting discussion today about Australia. And uh, we have with us uh, uh, Mr. Didi Saxena from Melbourne, Australia in the discussion. Didi, we were talking uh, just before the break about the Dutch disease and um, uh, what's the impact of that in Australia and how it's going through. Uh, my my uh, next point where I want your opinion and uh, your thoughts uh, is the key natural resources will become more scarce in future and the whole world needs it and uh, especially uh, the biggest buyer from Australia, the China. Uh, Australia seems to be in a great position for future with regard to natural resources. And uh, you had pointed out about agriculture also, mining, all the other natural resources in agriculture. Can you throw some light on those? Yeah, I mean, uh, look, um, uh, I think um, the, the century and the era of resources is, is probably, I wouldn't say it in the sunset days, but there won't be too many Chinas and too many Indias left in the 22nd century. And there will be less and less of the demand and certainly uh, the resources will be finite. Um, the, the, the thing really is one of the most valuable natural resources in this country is human intellect. And that is what they've imported a lot um, from Asia. And, and locally, I mean, the Australian education system is extremely good. Uh-huh. But what lacks in the country is entrepreneurship. And, and I think, um, you know, I mean, uh, earlier in the discussion, you were mentioning about how startups, VCs, and, and, and the top 10 companies in, in America, I mean, look at Facebook, look at Google, look, look in the larger context, um, Microsoft. I mean, right. these are all companies which have which have come out out of um, out of human talent, human resources. And you know what? And, Sorry for interruption, uh, Didi. The companies you named, if you go by market cap, five of these companies are the top market companies in terms of market cap today. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the the thing is, Mahesh, and taking my own personal example in all humility, I mean, um, uh, had. Um, we, we, we just were able to build this project in Australia because, in, in my opinion, there are monopolies who are inward-looking, who are like elephants for a change. Um, they move very slowly or they don't move. They believe they are, um, you know, not vulnerable. Then they, they, can't be, they can't be penetrated into and the future is secured for another century. I mean, we are today in our own field of oil seed crushing and refining. We're only a four-year-old company. And, in, in, and as I mentioned, I, that we are now bigger than Cargill in our refining capacity and capability. And in less than four years, we're running at, uh, at, at you know, nearly 95%. Very nice. So what I'm, yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that I, I have a feeling that this Asian fusion is going to is going to not look is, is going to change the landscape of this country. I think uh, the migration that is taking place, the the connectivity and the proximity to Asia, the positive image of doing business here and of reliability. I think a lot of Asians will participate in creating wealth here, and uh, and and I think uh, my personal uh, view is, and again I take. Uh, the example of our company, we basically were able to identify in a fairly commoditized segment two, three areas of uniqueness. Um, I, I mean, as you and the whole world is aware, this is the youngest continent in the world. And right. Australia fortunately had uh, a lot of land, which is both organic and a lot of land. And, and by, by definition, they are very pro-nature. And uh, 90% of the production is non-genetically modified. Now, you know, in America with uh, Whole Foods, Traders, Joe, and the whole market shift towards pure and natural, the shift is going towards non-GMO and non-GM foods. Now, I don't know if uh, this is a fad, but looks like not really. But um, 
If that happens, then uh, in our case, we are the only first Australian company which has approved non-GMO and edible oils, and, and edible oils are used in cooking everything. I mean, you know, right. you could take it for a sector. And, yeah. and we are the only third approved non-GM company in in United States. And we sell to mayonnaise companies, we sell to potato chip companies, we, our product gets bottled in Traders Joe. I mean, all I'm trying to say is, so if you take non-GM as, as just a broad opportunity, uh, the country should be actually using that as an, an opportunity to basically create value in the entire food supply chain. And uh, food, is, in my opinion, is more sustainable. I mean, people in China and India, uh, and I've seen, you know, uh, they can survive by not living necessarily in heated houses or in, you know, um, in, 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 in plush uh, uh, flats. But uh, everybody wants to have good quality food. Everybody wants to basically give the best to their family and to their children. So I, I feel that the, the dynamics of Australia's future, what it will be in 50 years, will change. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is going to be, um, to give you a hard number, and it's not comparable, at the beginning of the 20th century, uh, Australia's food and agri accounted for 25% of its GDP mm-hmm. and accounted nearly 65% of its exports. Today, in the uh, 21st century, I mean, food and agri accounted for under 5% of the GDP and uh, the, uh, less than 18% of its exports. I personally think in the next 50 years, it'll come back to, and which will be the changing face of Australia, it mm-hmm. probably will account for 20% plus of GDP and probably 60-70% of export. If you took at those numbers and forecasts, the probability is that food and agri sector will overtake mining two is to one than what it is today. Oh, okay. And I think that, and that is what I think the future of Australia is going to be. Oh, I see that. I see that. Yeah, let's let's look at it from uh, from the geopolitical uh, position and 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 uh, uh, global perspective. The demand is going to go up for food, water, and infrastructure needs of steel and. Um, uh, Energy also, Australia contributes there too. It has been growing in the past, but uh, with the, the growing middle class, especially in China, India, and uh, the worldwide population expansion, I think the demand is going to go up and it's expected that uh, the income growth will also occur. And, and you, you brought in a very good point that some places people may be willing to live in unheated house, but as the income growth accelerates, things will change, more demand will come in. And uh, I think uh, we have already seen some price volatility uh, in the past decades, and it may increase further as uh, as a result of increasingly harder to find resources and, uh, and, and uh, the use of expensive methodologies to source the supply. I think if there is yeah. any scarcity of any such natural resources globally, it's a good news for Australia because Australia has yeah. abundant uh, resources. And if it can maintain its surplus of key resources, uh, it can really, really leverage on it. And uh, Australia yeah. definitely is a resource exporting country and uh, they will definitely benefit uh, from increasing global demand, which can get them higher prices, and uh, it definitely can provide more developmental opportunities in various sectors, as, as you pointed out, agriculture and infrastructure. We may get even uh, investment from Asia who are looking for low risk, but another great point which you brought in, the innovation, the entrepreneurship would be the key factor to leverage that growth because you don't want to remain just with one sector. No, Manish, that's very true. But, um, and, and again, I mean, just to sort of, for your, for your listeners overseas, uh, we have uh, one state called the Northern Territory. Um, Northern Territory is about the size of India, just to give you a perspective in terms of its land. Wow. And it's high 
rainfall, right? It's, it's very close to Indonesia, so it's very tropical. And the population of whole of Northern Territory is 300,000 people. Uh -huh. So the uh, point I'm trying to make is that uh, what Australia has to do, the biggest risk in agriculture is rainfall. Uh, because this is dry land farming, it doesn't snow here. And while Australians have really developed world-class technology, as a matter of fact, they're leaders in, as I said, dry land farming, sustainable agriculture and resource management. Just to come back to the Northern Territory, we, there's enough rainfall there which goes for absolute waste. So they have to learn to create water infrastructure and harnessing of water. So that investment is a very major investment which a country has to make like you do in pipelines for, for petroleum products. Right. And secondly, I think there is going to be, this is my very strong view if, if the world is to be fed, I think food is underpriced and therefore not that much serious money has gone into research and development and building technology. I'm a great believer that the world will learn and probably Australians will lead the way in this in trying to grow rice with seawater or grow wheat in very low rainfall or even in desert areas. Amazing. Now if that happens and if that happens, I mean can you imagine 22 percent, I mean 20 out of the 23 million people uh, we occupy less than 2% land mass of the country and all of them are on the coastline. So this country has huge land mm -hmm. and it's, it's got outstanding technology in, in, in everything that it does. So I, I believe, as I said, that the country's lack of entrepreneurship and the government's incremental thinking basically does not allow it to think big and bold in terms of thinking big. And in terms of investing in R&D in the manner with a very focused end objective. But I'm sure in years to come, Australia will be, will be leading the way in research in food and agri. Ah, okay. That, that's a great point. Uh, Didi, um, we will take another short break and uh, we will resume our interesting discussions after the break. Thank you. the markets up or down or if you're looking to improve your portfolio our experts are ready to talk to you call now toll free 866-472-5790 that's 866-472-5790 voice america business network business you'll find the experts here voice america business network Welcome back. You're listening to Global Business with Mahesh Joshi. Uh, amazing discussions, Didi. I really appreciate uh, you sharing so much of knowledge about Australia. Uh, as you know, we have uh, Didi uh, with us in discussion from Melbourne in Australia. Uh, Didi, you brought in a lot of very good points. Uh, uh, enjoying the discussion. I want to hit uh, one very crucial point which comes... Uh, for Australia very often. Australians are getting older and richer. Not a bad scenario, but what do you think is the impact of that? Um, well, I mean, well, I think it, it, it's a risk. I think it's a risk because um, unless the country is able to expand its uh, 
demographic base, uh, you will ha have a very disproportionate number of older people, uh, which certainly will put a lot of strain on um, the the younger taxpayers and the government, as as well as um, people are living longer. So in terms of stretching the health services and the pension, um, so it's, it's it's undoubtedly on one side. Um, I mean, it's fortunate that they they have uh, the baby boomers and the and people who benefited from the mining resource are are getting wealthier. But the key issue is um, um, because of health services, they will keep getting older. And I'm not sure that uh, the next generation of older Australians will be as richer or as comfortable. So that's a bit worrying. Yeah. Um, no, you're right. It, because it's a help. sorry, go ahead. I was also going to say, in any case, uh, the personal taxes are very high in this country. As a matter of fact, um, not at very high levels. I mean, most of the people start paying 45 to 48 percent tax. And uh, I mean, you also have to basically then deduct your super. So the issue really is, um, it's already the tax net is pretty big and pretty substantial. And um, the 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 issue really is that unless we have uh, more younger people, which can only happen with migration uh, flows, um, we, we will find this becoming a fairly acute problem in the future. Ah, because, you know, uh, um, j just a data point, uh, Australians have uh, become richer with an average net worth rising uh, almost 40% in last 10 years from 0.5 million to 0.7. And also, uh, they have been accumulating wealth at a faster rate, and the net saving rate of 11% of disposable income, that's pretty tremendous. But the, the, but the problem here, which comes in, there can be two scenarios, as you rightly pointed out. Where are the funds being deployed? There could be optimistic, there could be a pessimistic situation there. But uh, both the trends of savings and uh, increased net saving and, and richness going up, uh, uh, it points to larger balances, and uh, uh, you'll have you'll be rich in capital, and the funds from savings can be productively deployed. The key word is you risk averse, or you're willing to take risk and deploy them to to in, to be productive. And uh, uh, can you uh, use that to improve and sustain your GDP growth rate? But if yeah. you don't do that, which uh, needs to be seen, if capital is cautious, it looks like um, uh, the Asians are going in there because they see low-risk environment. But if they continue with that and with substantial wealth balance, and if the capital is uh, locked in in unproductive low-risk investments, that's not going to fuel the economy. No, that is very true. You see, uh, I think one of the things Mahesh says, there has been significant expansion of capital through a capital appreciation rather than income alone. Because uh, Australia is one of the few countries which got the GFC, we were not impacted. Um, I mean, good macroeconomic management, low risk strategy paid off there. Um, the real estate has gone up three to four times in the last 20 years. It's only OECD country which uh, you know, housing has gone up. There's been no boom and bust in housing. Mm. And that is by both immigration funds from Asia as well as so there has been a lot of capital appreciation but at the same time what has happened is income growth has happened largely through wages so while there has been no effective inflation the buying really hasn't gone up I mean uh -huh. the minimum wage in Australia have gone up three times in the last 20 years three times from eight, eight and a half, nine dollars an hour to twenty-four, twenty-five dollars an hour. So what happens is your costs are also going up simultaneously. So that is that is one worry. This uh, and then productivity increases obviously can't go up that much. And and I mean you know this is a, like any first world. You have scope for increases in productivity, but not that much. So I think the issue is that uh, that is one factor. Undoubtedly, it is a lucky country. Undoubtedly, this our generation in the generation which is 40 plus has and, and generation which is 65 70 plus has benefited from what has been the 20 years but one thing that you did touch upon is is very crucial I mean the question is 
uh, unlike America, where if you if you fail, you rise up again and try, and right. the society rewards, and the sure. society encourages and rewards it. If you people set high standards and think big, and um, and, and pursue their dreams, yeah. the, the the problem with the Australian psyche is that they like a stable environment. Um, if, if 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 I set my standard to jump four and a half feet in high jump, my grandmother can jump that, right? It's only when I set standard to set seven feet, eight feet high jump, then I might fail in setting a high standard. And I think that shift has to happen because moving a country of stability, uh, good quality, comfortable life, because the civic engagement is good, health and environment has been extremely good. Housing has been there. It's a safe environment. Jobs have been there. I think we will have to move towards some amount of, um, you know, disruption in the country to change that happy, stable mode. We've got to create some stimulus here to wake up people, to raise their bar, raise the standard, invest in areas which are new and fresh, rather than. We don't want another 60 years to have the same eight companies in the top 10. So, yeah. you know, that has to change. That no, has to change. you bring in a very solid point because if you look at it, if you don't create the disruption towards improvement and increasing productivity, it'll be forced. Normally, it does happen. And, and today, if you see, as we were sharing some data about United States on uh, on their growth rates and uh, such a large economy, um, uh, almost 17 trillion, the Startups, the small companies, the rate of growth, the innovation, the number of companies coming up, they have been the job creation, not the conventional industry. So that's a huge disruption. And the other piece, um, which is becoming evident uh, in last three decades, is that as the world is moving from industrial era to digital era in this new information technology age, the rules of engagements have changed dramatically. And, and if you if you are not using disruptive technology, not moving fast enough, you can lag behind. But it looks yeah, like sure. uh, it looks like uh, uh, we have covered a lot of ground. And uh, what I see uh, from our discussion today that Australia is blessed with natural resources. Capital is available. Uh, in the country as well as inward investment as well as they have an opportunity to invest outside uh, of Australia. Education is good and there is migration policy in place to provide talent. So if you look at, if we summarize, you have all the mixes for growth and you can have tremendous growth if you do what you pointed out, you're willing to take the risk. And I, you can pick up a great example of the the current, the, the new um, president will be taking over on January 20th in United States of America, his background, that how the business environment supported him and uh, he could fight back again and create such a big empire despite failure in some of his ventures. And uh, he got rewarded for that. He got an opportunity to redo it. So if that comes into the mix with the availability of migra clear migration, good policy, natural resources available, good education infrastructure and capital available, there can be a lot of success. Undoubtedly. I mean, I, I personally think that, that uh, um, as, as you had indicated on this topic earlier, I think Australia is a hidden jewel of the global economy. Um, and and, and, and and there, there are a lot of diamonds to be plucked. It's just that um, a right blend of entrepreneurship with capital and, and market access is, is, is going to happen. And, uh, and I'm very positive uh, for, the, for the future of Australia. And particularly, it's blessed uh, not only with its natural resources, it's blessed in, um, in the 21st century in, in, in being amongst the 7% growth economy of the world and the fastest growing region of the world. And, and I think that's, that's exciting. Right. And uh, Didi, we are coming close to end. Before uh, uh, we close, 
I just wanted to share uh, some unique facts about Australia with our listeners. Um, Australia is the sixth largest country by area due to its large size and isolation from rest of the world. Australia is sometimes known as the island continent. And Australia has over 750 different reptile species, more than any other country in the world. Lastly, Australia's National Science Agency claims to have basically invented Wi-Fi. Well, uh, Didi, thank you so much for such an amazing discussion. You brought in a lot of uh, great points. I wish we had more time to discuss each one of them, but uh, I enjoyed discussing with you. And we see uh, uh, why Australia is uh, uh, a jewel, uh, as you rightly said, hidden jewel uh, in the global economy. And I definitely see with uh, uh, the, the knowledge you shared with us about Australia and its connectivity with the rest of the world, that there are a lot of good things to come for Australia. So thank you so much, Didi. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, Mahesh. I enjoyed it likewise. Thanks. And thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the voice america business channel for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit voiceamericabusiness.com the voice america talk radio network is the worldwide leader in live internet talk radio visit voiceamerica.com the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the voice america talk radio network its staff and management 